It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to Robert Jobson's Royal Podcast. I'm Rob Jobson, Royal Editor of the Evening Standard. And in this episode, the fifth in the series, I'll be looking at what it's like to be on the road as a royal correspondent. I've been covering the royals for about 30 years or so. And in that time, I've travelled all around the globe, covering royal visits, both private and public. I've been as far as Vanuatu in the in the Pacific, up Mount Everest, to with, with the Duchess of uh, York on a charity visit all around South America, the Falkland Islands, you name it, I've probably been there. And in that time, it's been an incredible experience to have travelled and to have seen so many amazing things and have a ringside seat to history, which, uh, as a history graduate, is something I absolutely have loved. In this episode, I'll be looking at what it's like to be on the road in this day and age, what it's like to be covering a royal tour. Recently, I travelled with the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall on a visit to France and to Greece. I also, on that uh, visit, was able to chat to a good friend of mine, Arthur Edwards, the royal photographer of the sun, who's been covering the royals even longer than I have, well over 40 years. He, uh, We started out, um, when I started out my royal career with him, um, at the Sun, I was Royal Reporter of the Sun, when, and he was a great help, mentor, and friend to me in getting to understand uh, the intricacies and delicacies of covering this job, as well as what it's really like um, on the road. In this episode, we chat uh, at a cafe in Nice just before the Prince of Wales and, and um, Camilla were due to be there about what it would, was like in the past and how things have changed covering the royal family um, over the years. And we tell a few of the amusing stories and anecdotes that took place at the time. Um, I hope you enjoy that. I certainly enjoyed um, my little trip down memory lane and um, and hearing some of the stories uh, from Arthur that were um, around at the time, even before I started doing this job. I'll also be catching up again with podcast regular Ken Wolfe, former personal protection officer to Princess Diana, about the experience of touring with the royals from the other side of the coin. He would be the man who would have to check out all security implications for any trip at home and abroad, but also do the reconnaissance missions to ensure everything was safe and for that role to go on that trip. I'll also be doing a reading from my first book, William's Princess, which was written um, back in 2006, published in 2006 by John Blake. And and to keep him with the theme, I'm going to read from a chapter um, that looks how I broke the story of Charles to marry Camilla whilst I was on the road and what it's like to break a story like that 
Um, obviously, I won't be giving out any state secrets about where my what, who my source was, but it gives you a sense of the excitement and the um, adrenaline rush that can be involved in such a story. Um, I was awarded Scoop of the Year for that story by the London Press Club, as well as commended by the, um, at the National Journalist Awards as well. Um, I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, if you do, please rate it on Apple Podcasts. We've been getting some very good feedback from the general public. A lot of people seem to be liking uh, the podcast and looking forward to the, the weekly episodes. If you do, please get in touch with me on Twitter at The Royal Editor or just post your comments where you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Please um, also just keep listening. At the moment, we've had some good feedback and we were the highest new entry on itunes for a podcast coming in at number 66 before going up to 52 so we've had a a good run and i hope that um, you continue to listen and you continue to enjoy these episodes going on tour is actually a very tricky thing you have to make sure that you've got all of your clothes packed correctly you've got your you've got to make sure you've got the right suits the right attire if there's black tie you've got to ensure that all your equipment is charged and ready to go and in good working order you've also got to be patient because half the time you're waiting around for very long times for the royal to turn up security means that you have to be there hours often ahead of the actual principal's arrival if you're travelling in the motorcade, you should make sure you must never, ever miss the motorcade. But also, nine times out of ten, you're on a royal bus, a media bus that gets you from one A to B. The one piece of advice Arthur always used to give me was never miss the bus. Arthur and I are going to be chatting about what is it like touring with the royal family. Merci, merci. Yeah. Café au lait, please. I'm here in Nice um, on the tour of the... Prince of Wales and Duchess of Cornwall in the um, Marsh or Fleur, the flower market, where they're just about to arrive. I'm sitting with Arthur Edwards, who's a, a veteran of many, many tours, over 40-odd years covering the royal family. He works, of course, for the Sun newspaper and has been their leading photographer there for many, many years. What, what do you think now, Arthur, is different about what it used to be? When we first started on the Sun together, I think it was a little bit more of a wild west we could pretty much do what we liked and now it's a little bit more control but it doesn't take necessarily away from what we're doing no it's still it's still a great way to earn a living and uh, and you do see some brilliant uh, spots in the world and what's the biggest change is of course technology really where it's everything so instant the news is instant i mean first big tour i did to india i used to send one picture a day because it costs so much money to send one picture imagine uh, covering that beautiful country with the Prince of Wales. Now you can send 100 pictures in in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and it's just incredible, the, the amounts of technology. But the fact is, they're still the, it's still the same Prince of Wales. It's a man who still cares so much and, and, and tries to achieve so much. And um, in my view, just doing a brilliant job for our country and, and, and supported now by a lovely Camilla. Um, who, in my view, just has just been a, a joy uh, to his life and to our life. I mean, she's a joy to work with, and uh, and she just supports him totally. I mean, I've noticed the changes we've been involved in, I and mean, we some of the characters of the the journalists that we've worked with too. I mean, you know, we we were very lucky enough, and I was quite a young man, lucky enough to work with the likes of 
Harry Arnold is a legend of the sun and none of the mirror, of course, no longer with us, James Whitaker, And, you know, even now uh, we sit, and although there's, the, <laughs> the stories seem to still resonate, you know. I mean, the, tell me a, one trip that you went with, with Harry where the Prince of Wales asked him, and it's quite hard to do this, with, which is without it being graphic, but asked him where he got his stories from. Well, Harry, would, uh, look, Harry was, um, in my view, uh, a genius. Uh, left school at 16. Bernardo's, uh, wasn't he? He was a Bernardo's boy. Uh, no, he was. He had a very tough upbringing. Uh, yeah, a very tough upbringing, but a wonderful raconteur, a great comedian, a, a very a short man, but, but huge in stature and a heart as big as a lion. And I, I was lucky to work with him for 12 years. And um, he taught me so many things, you know. And um, the main thing he taught me was... You just need one great fact for a great story. And, and the second thing he taught me was that if you haven't got an intro, you haven't got a story, <laughs> which means you haven't got a fact. Yeah, and, of course, the Prince of Wales was fascinated by how he used to produce one great story after another. And it was all about exclusives then days. It was never about, the, the, which we have, unfortunately, today, the sharing policy where we have to share everything. Harry would go out for an exclusive. And I remember once he was covering a, a story... And a particular fact appeared in the story that he hadn't told the pool. He was the pool reporter. <laughs> and Clive Goodman, the News of the World, went up screaming up to him. Harry said, why didn't you tell us that? He said, Harry said, because I made it up. I didn't want to tell you. <laughs> and, of course, and of course, what can you do? They just laughed and they took him out and bought him a drink. He used to say, I remember when I first started as a young journalist, he used to say, he was full of pearls of wisdom, as as are you, Arthur. But you know, he would he would, he would say, "Never be adamant; you could be wrong," which was an absolutely brilliant godsend when you're writing a royal story. And uh, when he, when I asked him for his advice on a couple of things, he said to me, "Well, you've got to remember, royal reporting is a bit like bricks without straw." So he was he was. Full he also, of... once I remember, uh, <laughs> we were in a story and. Uh, Something happened, and a picture happened, and a, and a story happened before I, and I missed it, and so did Harry. And I managed to buy a picture off a of freelance. And Harry was going around and said, give, give anyone a pound for a fact. Give me a fact. I'll buy a fact. Anybody got a fact? I mean, it was so funny because it was all about. But, you know, this man was. Uh, I, I, I still think of him every day in my prayers, you know, and, he, and, and James. James, of course, was another legend. James Whitaker worked for me with, at The Sun. And he was a true legend. He took nobody at face value. He just went for it. And uh, I remember we we do the Prince Charles hunting, and everybody was holding back. James said, "Let's go for it, Arthur. Let's go for it." You know, and we did, and we got great pictures and great stories. And he's and he's and his zeal and he's and he's and he's and he's Energy. Cut, energy, and his cut glass accent used yeah. to kill me. You know, I always remember saying about him and his brother. His brother spoke with a South, with a North Country or West Country accent, and James spoke with someone who just come out of Eton. And I said to him, "What well, when your brother went to school? Did the money run out?" <laughs> he was he was terribly funny because he, when I I mean I would have been in my mid to early twenties when I started raw reporting. What nearly thirty years ago, and you know I was sort of catapulted in with you. And uh, to cover the royal story for the, the the sun, and it was known as then the sun as the poisoned chalice. You only lasted usually about eighteen months before you're out. And then James would come up to you, and he's big, big fellow. I was a lot slimmer then, and he'd say, um, he was always good with his advice. But he said, "Do you know 
or do you think you know? <laughs> Which was always... But the thing, as you said earlier, it was quite interesting. Now, you know, there's this big pool system where, you know, on these trips, you, th- th- there's a sharing of information because you can only... A certain number of people could go into the, the jobs. But we had that then. But we used to... There would always be a, a situation, as I remember, where they were holding it back. A friend of mine, well, you, I know you work with him, Wayne, Wayne Francis, we were on a trip in Australia... And the Prince of Wales had spoken about how he'd always wanted to have a tattoo. And uh, and, we, and, the, and Wayne mentioned this, the last gasp of this briefing to us. I said, hang on a second, what do you mean he just wanted a tattoo? Apparently he'd wanted a massive tattoo of an eagle on his back, all over his back when he was in the Royal Navy, but he wasn't allowed to have it. And Wayne, by this stage, had already told the son, and they'd mocked up a picture with Prince Charles with the eagle on his back. It was already in the paper before he briefed us. But you oh, know, God, I remember those days. I, I remember there was there was nothing. Sacros- I remember once when James was ill in Australia, and he asked Harry to cover for him uh, for a Sunday shift. They had to do to do a Sunday shift for the people. And they get paid for that shift. Get paid they? extra. And he said, "I'll give you the money for it, Harry." So Harry said, "Okay." And it was with Diana's trip and Charles' trip to Australia, and nothing happened on that Saturday. And uh, Harry phoned in, and they said, "Oh well." They went on a picnic and they had to quit early because of mosquitoes. And, uh, and the princess got stung a few places. So Harry, being the genius he was, wrote this story to file it to the, uh, to the people, James Whitaker. And the fellow said, well, you don't sound like James. He said, I've got a cold. <laughs> and, uh, and he phoned uh, and he said this story about Princess Diana was stung in a place you couldn't mention <laughs> and uh, had to quit the party had to quit the barbecue and of course uh, thought nothing of it thought about three piles on page eight and the next morning of course it was the splash because some brilliant sub-editor on the on the people had put this magnificent headline up son uh, uh, Aussie mozzie bites down down under and of course the next morning his news editor Tom Petrie was on the phone to Harry Harry there's a great story in the people he said follow it up Harry said I've tried boss he said there's nothing in it It's yeah, all made up, it's all made up. <laughs> no, But we had great characters. I mean, even when I was there, I mean, people like Charlie Ray, I've spoken to him, you know, he was he was a, in great form. I remember once I'd got a story that Mother Dinah was going to go and visit Mother Teresa um, when we'd been to India and, and, she died, and she'd been ill. Mother Teresa was in Rome. Of course, Charlie was the only person who didn't drink and he would be watching everything everybody was doing. Yeah. And he spotted me talking to this diplomat this is how different it is i mean it, all this would have to be shared now and and i'd got all the information and was filing it to the to the son and he said well i've watched you let's do a share so i'd share it with today but nobody else i said well under pain of death don't tell anyone else particularly james for christ's sake because if james the mirror finds out we're in trouble yeah. well, the next thing i know of course we're getting on the plane and Charlie decides to fess up and tell James. Well, James was off that plane and back through the fire. And he filed it back to London to Stott. Just said, they tried to stitch me up. Stott, he put this on page one. And I, I learnt my lesson that day because, of course, when I landed at the other end, page one was James, exclusive by James Whitaker, Diner in Mercy Dash to Mother Teresa. Page three and one was Charlie Ray in the same headline. And mine was a stick on page seven with... With no exclusive tag, so they, they you up properly, <laughs> they completely yeah. fitted me up. But Charlie was a bit like that. But having said that, you know, Charlie was a dog. I was a really hard-working guy who never ever 
showed anything but total enthusiasm for everything he did. Well, he used to have that thing where he used to go blow a trumpet, it'd be a true yeah. story yeah. alert. <laughs> True story alert. <laughs> but the thing that's different about you, Arthur, I mean, I think obviously when you're talking about Harry, you were very much a, a team like you were with me and with other royal reporters. But, you know, what makes a re- photographer like you different is you're both a photographer and a journalist. You're looking for both the story and the And sometimes it's words, sometimes it's pictures, as you used to say to me. But the reality is... And sometimes it's both. And sometimes it's both. And you've got to be aware of of all of those angles to be a success and to keep the story going. It's something you've always managed to do. You're always looking for a story. Not necessarily it's going to be the best picture, but it's still the story. Exactly. And Harry was the same. I remember when we went to the Great Wall of China and we had to this photo court at the bottom of the wall and it was was about 50... photographers all photographing the Queen and the Duke standing at the wall and the uh, Queen stood there, Duke stood there they looked so miserable and it was the most boring picture and of course the Queen and the Duke then go up the wall but Harry put a suit and tie on that day, they thought he was with the, with the embassy <laughs> so he goes up, when he gets to the first gate where the Queen relaxes, puts her sunglasses on gets her camera out, starts taking pictures she said oh let's have a picture here Philip, so he said we have loads of pictures down there, so yes no this is for us she said and so, who's going to take Harry said, I will. <laughs> Harry took a picture on his, on his sure shot. Click, 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 right. Came down, slipped me the film. And where I went to, I went to the to Reuters, processed the film. Well, of course, we had the front page, but it wasn't the picture at the bottom. And I remember, I remember Harry Dempster from the Express in the next room. On the, he was right next to me, and, 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 and he's, he's a picture of it saying, it's a great picture in the sun. No, 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 no. Oh, she's wearing sunglasses. No, she wasn't wearing sunglasses. And she's got a camera. No, 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 it didn't happen. You've got, no, no. I'm telling you, he said, it's in the sun. It's got Arthur Edward's name under it. And he said, it's wearing sunglasses and carrying a camera and she's smiling. Well, that was Harry. Harry's a genius. No, that was a I mean, we both went to see him actually short, shortly before he passed away, of course. And, uh, he was still in great form then, you know. He was still, uh, yeah. he was still telling the stories, and he told me the one that I remember, which probably one we can close on is when, you know, obviously nowadays we mainly stick to the public side of things, but in those days you'd be ahead of them on the on the private islands and places they went. And he told a story about when you went to Mustique, I think it was, when Princess Margaret was there, and then the Queen was letting her hair down, the Duke of Edinburgh oh, was having a drink, dance, yeah. and you were both, you'd both gone onto the island as French businessmen. Yeah, but no, gone on to buy property. We didn't have two bob between us, but we were, anyway, because we were staying at the hotel, we were invited to the ball. And we go in there, and of course, we're sort of, we're fronting it up, and um, the, uh, like, playing out the role, and all of a sudden, Michael what was his name? Ron Allison, Ron who was the press, press secretary at the time, come up and said, hello, Harry, what are you doing here? <laughs> the next morning, we were gently escorted off the island. But yeah. it was a great... I mean, that was Harry at his very, very best. He was one of the... Uh, I'll say this now, and I say him because I fondly remember him. I loved him as a, almost like a brother. He was the kindest, nicest, but hardest-working reporter, I think, ever. And... I think even you, Robert, who, you know, you're top of your game and you have been for many years, you could, would salute that man. Oh, I do. But the other thing about him is he was always extremely generous, as was James, because I remember when I broke the story of Charles to marry Camilla, the first two people on the phone was Harry, was Harry Arnold 
and James Whitaker and me and you yeah. all congratulating you. Now it seems it seems to me anyone everyone's always a little bit po faced about other people coming up with stories, but that's the mark of the people is that to actually be able to say yeah that's a good story. Well done. Just to finish on great Robert's great scoop of Charles Camary Mary Camilla. I remember I was on the phone to the office, and they said, <coughs> and I was talking to him about something. Uh, I was on the phone to Australia to a friend of mine who was the news editor of the Australian paper and, and then the office came on on my mobile and they said, Christ, you just heard Charles is going to marry Camilla. And I went, Charles is going to marry Camilla? He said, yeah, it's been announced and it's at the other end in Australia. Oh, thanks for that, Arthur. Head <laughs> off. <laughs> so I'll never forget that. No, it was a great hit, Robert. Well done. Good stuff. Great to see you, Arthur. Thanks for the chat. Being on tour as part of the press corps as the Royal, or the Royal Rat Pack, as we used to be called, is one side of the coin. The other, of course, is the experience of touring as part of the Royal Household itself, or the security team, who are quite separate from the household and employed by Scotland Yard. One person knows all about this, of course, is Ken Wolfe, who for seven years was personal protection officer to Diana, Princess of Wales, and to her two sons. He was responsible for security while she was out and about, and also when she was at home and abroad, um, he would have to carry out reconnaissance missions ahead of every royal tour and make sure that everything was safe and in order. Um, he was with us, of course, a lot at some of the most famous media moments. And we, and we spoke about that in our chat we had for this podcast. You are a, an armed protection officer. You Were there any incidents um, which jump out of you that... Uh, that, that you know, where it did get rather uh, tricky, that you had to sort of pull your gun. I mean, I know there were a couple of occasions where um, there were incidents that you were involved in. Yeah, I mean, uh, there were a couple of incidents. I mean, when you consider that I was what, with Diana for seven years, with the boys for a year and a bit, I can honestly say that um, during that period, never once was the security compromised. Um, but there were the odd incident. I mean, with Diana, I mean, I think people said, was, was, did you ever draw your firearm? Um, there's only one occasion I ever did that. And um, that was the sort of last reigns of power of the Thatcher era. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM. And um, I was going with Diana to uh, an, uh, an event in the city. We were traveling on the embankment. And our communications let us down because what we didn't know, there was a student demonstration in Waterloo. And it broken up. The students were coming across Waterloo Bridge saw the police outriders and the green jaguar and the escort. They must have thought, ah, this is perfect. This is Thatcher. So they literally came off the bridge and surrounded our car. And so you've got all these students banging on the glass. But of course, those with their noses to the glass could see it was Diana and were saying to us, no, no, it, it's not Maggie. We've got, the, it's, it's Di. And I took my gun out and immediately realised, well, there's not much I could do with this anyway, you know. And eventually I said to the chauffeur, look, let's get out of here. And, we'll, you know, try and knock as few people over as possible. And eventually we went, did a U-turn. 
and came back. But it was quite a hairy moment being surrounded like that. And, and, and then similarly, not so long after that, in Barrow in Furness in, in, in the north, Diana um, was launching the, the first of the nuclear submarines. And uh, there'd been a... I mean, I'd spent a long time with the MOD discussing the security for this. And we decided, because of the real risk of demonstrations from uh, anti-nuclear demonstrators in Faslane in Scotland, that we'd best if we landed inside the shipyard. And that was agreed. But as we're coming down by helicopter, um, I get a, a call from my men on the ground to say that um, the chief constable um, wants Diana to drive around Barrow in Furness um, to greet the people. And I said, no, 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 we're not doing that. So Diana heard this and she said, oh, I don't mind, Ken. I said, yeah, I know you don't mind, man, but we can't do that. Oh, no, I think we should. I said, no, we're not doing it. Anyway, we landed, <clears throat> and there's the chief constable. And he was, I was overruled. He said, we, we're going to go through Baron Furness with two and a half thousand people. But that shouldn't happen, should it? Well, it shouldn't happen, um, but I was overruled, and I, you know, I was very angry about it. But, of course, okay, off we go, and there's a sort of flag-waving population of Barrow. It was fantastic. I, I could see why. But, but what they didn't understand was the, the wider issue. There was a real security threat. And, of course, we eventually arrived back at the shipyard with no exit. We were blocked in, and then suddenly... From and there'd been no preparation no, no. for this And route. then suddenly from over the railings came 40 or 50 demonstrators dressed as Ku Klux Klan individuals. And then we had this horrible scene of one demonstrator sort of grappling with the window of Diana's side. Again, we had to lock the doors. And eventually, of course, my colleagues, my crew, you know, removed this guy. So nobody was injured. But it was embarrassing because I think the, 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 the following day's newspapers, instead of covering the event... Uh, which was quite a significant event, political event, all they were interesting about the sort of go-slow detectives and the mess that, that, that happened. But yeah, these things happen, and uh, luckily nobody was injured. T tell me a little bit, you know, part of the job that I've done in the last 30 years is, is travelling around the world and covering both royal tours and private holidays. We've talked a little about Necker Island and some of the trips uh, that you did with Diana, which in those days the media would cover, and then... What's happened subsequently after the tragic death of the princess is a lot of those sort of areas are deemed too private to cover and aren't covered um, or reported on. But the royal tours themselves could be quite amazing too. And you, you were witness to some of those um, incredibly historic moments. Well, the, I mean, India was, um, was a particularly... Uh, Interesting. This would have been 1992. Yeah, when, you know, their relationship at this point was at a pretty low ebb. Um, and, of course, the prince had gone off in one direction and Diana decided to uh, visit the Taj Mahal. Well, of course, that was the, the only following for the media to take and the story that you just regaled there is true. I mean, I, she sat on the bench and no one had been briefed about this and I was stood, what, certainly with an earshot, about two feet away. But and then it was a slight con though, wasn't it? Because we, you know, with all these things, there's loads of people around and us, the media, we just said, right, keep everyone back, which they kindly did. And they gave the impression of this solo princess. But actually, if you look beyond the camera, there were about, Hundred people around. Well, well, that's right. And what was thought was going to be just a, a quick snap, and then let's move on. And I, it was Simon McCoy who was then working for Sky, actually. the BBC. Yeah, said um, said um, 
oh, um, what's it like, ma'am? Can you explain that? And she looked to me and went with a corner and I said, what on earth shall I say? Well, I, I didn't. I said, well, just say it's a, a, a healing experience. So it was your fault. It probably was my fault. <laughs> anyway, so she said, oh, it's a healing experience. I think that would be the end of it. And then some some member of the Rat Pack sort of shouted out, well, what does that mean? Well, because that's a, quite annoyed. Well, work it out for yourself, which is not a bad reply, which you did, of course. You did work it out. Yeah, splash, you know, yeah. it means. <laughs> but but you know, there were some extraordinary places that we went to. I mean, I, it was a great privilege for me. I mean, India was one. I, South America, Brazil was another. I mean, because on every journey, there was always a funny story. reading this week is from William's Princess, the first book that I wrote with um, publisher John Blake back in 2006. And I've chosen it because this uh, involves a chapter of what it's actually like to be out and about on the road when you get a exclusive tip and how you have to change tack completely and make sure that you manage that story into the paper. The story I'll be talking about, of course, is one of my biggest scoops, which was the, um, the story that Charles was to marry Camilla, which I had a tip about when I was um, travelling to meet another contact and had to completely um, change everything I was doing that day to make sure I could get the story um, in the paper and, of course, getting it ahead of everybody else. Because although you're uh, friends with other uh, royal correspondents on other newspapers, the ultimate thing is to achieve is the scoop that beats them. So there's always a tension between um, you when you're on royal tours or when you're covering stories, because ultimately, as the journalist, you want to get that scoop and that exclusive. Wednesday, 9th of February 2005, 2.43pm. Get yourself to a phone box and call me back, it's urgent. There was no need to ask who it was. I recognised the caller's voice instantly and knew from the tone that it was a serious. From the irregular, irritating beeps on the line, I knew too that the caller was inside a public phone box. Even members of the British royal family have been famously caught out making indiscreet telephone calls on mobiles. It happened to both the Prince and the Princess of Wales when they spoke indiscreetly and freely to their lovers on mobile phones. They could only watch as the resultant royal scandals, Camilla Gate and Squidgy Gate, rolled excruciatingly across the front pages of the tabloid press. My deep throat contact and impeccable inside source was not that naive. The source knew that the only way to defeat anyone intent on listening into private conversations, whether they are spooks working for the intelligence services or investigative journalists, is by phone box to phone box calls. It's utterly untraceable and totally deniable. It was a cold, clear afternoon and I was travelling in the back of a black London taxi when the telephone call cut across my day. I had been in my way to meet an old contact at the Wolsey, a smart moo restaurant frequented by film stars, actors and writers and those with the wealth or the expense accounts to be seen there. But in an instant, everything was put on hold. 
I was in Piccadilly at the heart of London's West End, and I told the cabbie to pull over at the first public phone box he could see. I knew every second counted, and I had to make that call. I had to know what my contact was so eager to tell me. Typically, almost laughably, the first telephone box I tried was out of order. After what felt like an age, I eventually found one that did work. And what I was told astounded me. It was sensational. The journalistic scoop of a lifetime and a story that would change the face of the monarchy forever. Philip Graham, who published the Washington Post for nearly two decades, described journalism as the first rough draft of history. As I absorbed what I was being told, I knew that history was unfolding in my little notebook. My source was curt to the point. Three things. HMQ, Her Majesty the Queen, is seeing the PM, Prime Minister, on Friday. Topic for conversation is the POW, Prince of Wales's wedding. She has agreed he can marry his lady. They will do it on April the 8th at Windsor Castle. Click. As I scribbled the information in longhand in my red notebook, I could hardly believe my ears. This was the biggest story of my life, the culmination of a decade and a half of reporting on Britain's first family for various news and broadcast organisations from all across the world. If I had learned anything during that time, it was that the British royal family are fiercely protected of their personal lives. It's their territory, their domain, and they will do their own announcements. It's almost defied belief that the news that the heir to the throne was to remarry and that the bride would be his, the woman who had been his mistress on and off for the best part of three decades had seeped out of the family's control and into my little notebook. It was a bombshell. It was a story that would bounce around the world as soon as it was known, and I could only hope that I could hold on to the scoop without anyone getting else to get the information. It was going to be a long 24 hours, and to my surprise, it was calm, calmer than I could ever have imagined. The same source had led me to believe that this marriage was on the cards some six weeks earlier, but it was not enough then. On the 14th of December 2004, I had already written a report in London's Evening Standard, a respected 179-year-old newspaper with a pedigree for accuracy and fast turnaround of stories, revealing that Charles believed himself free to take his long-term mistress as his wife. A few ill-informed columnists poor scorned on the notion. They may have had access to only second- and third-hand information, but that did not stop their knocking my story and pontificating on it. More for them. When I spoke to my good friend and mentor Ian Walker, then the assistant editor and head of news operations at The Standard, he now is the executive editor of The Mound Online, he rightly said that we would not write another story suggesting a future marriage between the couple without hard evidence. No matter how deep my source's conviction that a decision to marry had been taken, we needed more before we went to print. We needed something very specific. We needed a date. We needed a date and a time and a place. Now, incredibly, I had all three. It was without doubt the biggest story of my career. The future king was to marry his former mistress, and I knew about it, even before Her Majesty the Queen had formally informed the Prime Minister. This was what it was all about. This is why journalism, a trade, can also be seen as a vocation. It's certainly not just a job. I flagged down the taxi and telephoned Ian. He was the only person I could trust professionally with a story of this magnitude. I had worked with him for many years at my previous newspaper, the Daily Express, and there is an old expression in Fleet Street, once an express man, always an express man. It was never true in this case. I knew I could trust him. It was too late for the story to make the last edition of the Evening Standard. Besides, this had to be carefully thought through. Ear would recognise that, and it would know how to handle it. 
In Hollywood movies featuring journalists and newspapers, it's always seemed so simple. The anxious, self-doubting reporter gleans the information and runs to the telephone box to file his story down the line. In a barely a breath, his scrambled words are assembled on the page and the finished article with his name proudly bylined at the top goes to press. Another exclusive is secured. Everything goes without a hitch. The reality is rarely so straightforward. Ian had arranged to meet me in a bar around the corner from the Evening Standard's offices in Kensington. When the veteran newsman arrived, he looked tired. Hardly surprising, really, given that he'd been at his desk since 5am that morning, heading the team of reporters tasked with pushing through the day's news agenda. With his dry humour, Ian joked, I know it's something's up. You're drinking coffee. What's happening? I cautiously spelled out what I knew in a whisper so that nobody could overhear us, and Ian's reaction mirrored my own, a mixture of elation and anxiety in almost equal measure. We both knew that the next few hours would be exhilarating but enormously stressful. If we put the information to the Prince of Wales's press office team, headed by the former Financial Times journalist Buddy Harverson, there was a fairly good chance that it would leak and blow my scoop. It wasn't worth thinking about. We just had to hold our nerve and go with it, Ian said. I agree. The source was rock solid, and my gut feeling was that that this information was correct. But both Ian and I were acutely aware of how disastrous it would have been if we went ahead with a story of this significance, and it was officially rubbished. If it was wrong, I suppose we're both screwed, I joked, knowing full well that we'd have to both fall on our swords. There could be no doubt about that. But if we simply sat on the story and it was subsequently announced at the Prince's press team at Clarence House, then we would be damned professionally and rightly so. Our minds made up. Ian and I walked back into the newsroom and met up with the editor, Veronica Wadley. We took her and the deputy editor, Ian McGregor, into the editor's office. The source is solid, she asked. Yes, I replied. You're sure of that? Yes. Great, let's go with it. Ian McGregor, half-jokingly, grim-faced, also said, So you're sure it's April the 8th, not the 1st of April? He may have just said it in jest, but it added to the self-doubt that I already had. I knew in my heart that this wasn't some elaborate April fall or wind-up, but I still had to inwardly struggle to hold my nerve. What if the source had been fed this information to catch a mole, I thought rhetorically as I walked out, but said nothing. Instead, I headed straight for the privacy of Ian Walker's small office and sat down to write. In journalism, according to the Pulitzer Prize winner Ellen Goodman, there is always a tension between getting it right and getting it first. As it transpired, I had ticked both boxes. The following morning, the billboards on the newsstands across London declared exclusive Charles to Wed Kamina. As the first edition of the Evening Standard went to print, it was the first time a newspaper not Buckingham Palace had revealed the royal family were about to announce a royal wedding. The story bounced Clarence House into an ill-prepared damage limitation exercise. In the weeks that followed, the extent to which my revelation caught them off guard became woefully apparent. The newspaper announcement marked the beginning of a torrid time for the Clarence House. Officials whose grasp of the finer points of range in the particular royal wedding was exposed as being tenuous and at best, if not incompetent. The legality was questioned. The impossibility of a church wedding turned Camilla into a house of Windsor's first town hall bride, and for a while, in the early spring of 2005, barely a day passed without the revelation of some apparent oversight, error or miscalculation on the part of Prince Charles's team. It was not long before the wedding plans were being dismissed as a right royal shambles, and while the palace officials struggled to pull together the chaotic arrangements, they were forced to address a question that might otherwise have been ignored. What did Prince William and Prince Harry think of the wedding? 
especially William. It was not until the end of March, seven weeks after I'd broken the story, that we got a chance to judge the boys' reaction for ourselves. As the official press call at close to the ski resort, the Swiss Alps, where Prince William and Harry were holidaying with their dad, William was asked how he felt about the wedding. Very happy, very pleased, he said. It will be a good day. The press call became infamous due to Prince Charles's ill humour and curmudgeonly aside in which he referred to the press as you bloody people. He also unfairly singled out the unfortunate BBC correspondent Nick Witchell for personal criticism, calling him that awful man. It was a gaffe more befitting of his father, Prince Philip, and it overshadowed everything else about the day. Well, almost. News never stands still, and even on the eve of Charles and Camilla's wedding, Prince William found himself asked by a television journalist in the pack if another royal wedding was on the cards, his own perhaps. William, whose mood had been upbeat, suddenly changed demeanour. He almost visibly stiffened. No, I don't think so, he said. I'm just gagging to get back on the slopes. The press call was over. On that February day when I broke the story of Charles and Camilla's engagement, it was the source of the leak that preoccupied palace officials and press rivals alike. A finger-pointing row broke out over the leak. At one point, it was even bizarrely suggested that Tony Blair's spin doctor-in-chief, the Daily Mirror former political editor Alistair Campbell, a despised figure amongst senior political journalists, was behind it. When, when pressed on this issue during a regular Downing Street lobby briefing, the Prime Minister's official spokesman, Tom Kelly, insisted that the leak was nothing to do with Blair. It was, he said, simply an evening standard royal scoop. And it was a scoop that forced the hand of the heir to the throne. Some would later claim that the announcement was always destined to have been made that day, but it was complete nonsense, for the royal diaries of engagements are well structured and consummately planned months in advance, even years. One, on the day I ran the story, the palace was forced to issue a formal announcement. The Queen was officially opening the museum at Westminster and Alice Winston Churchill. Prince Charles also carried out official engagements in the City of London. There's no way either the monarch or her son would have undertaken these engagements on such a momentous day had there in fact been an announcement planned. On the morning that the Evening Standard ran the story, Buckingham Palace, according to Charles's friend and biographer Jonathan Binbeby, had been bounced into issuing a formal statement. The wording was simple. It was a great pleasure that the marriage of His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales and Camilla Buckingham was announced. It would take place on Friday the 8th of April 2005 at Windsor Castle. The location was of course subsequently changed to Windsor Guildhall, followed by a service of dedication and prayer officiated by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Rowan Williams. The ceremony date was also changed to the 9th of April to allow the Prince of Wales to attend the funeral in Rome of the Pope. But with a short official confirmation, a wind of change swept through the palace corridors of power. A brave new monarchy was about to emerge from the lengthening shadows of the latter part of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, and with the so-called Camilla problem on the cusp of resolution, the focus of attention within the palace walls and beyond Prince William, the second in line to the throne, and the next Prince of Wales, who would be tasked with taking a royal pride. As always, thanks to everyone who took part in this episode. And thanks to you, the listener, too. Please remember to rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to more episodes. This is Robert Jobson, for now, signing off.
Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM.